This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. Sally Hepworth has written many books and spoken about them on many occasions, and I'm sure she's been asked this question many times. Sally Hepworth, where did you get your idea for your latest book, The Good Sisters? <laughs> I have been asked that one once or twice. And uh, the truth is that there were a few little things that played together to make this book come to life. And I guess the biggest one was my two daughters, because I have a confession to make, and that is that I don't actually have a sister. So I kind of have a bit of an audacity writing a story called The Good Sister, which is all about sisterly relationships. Um, But what I do have is two daughters who really have taught me a lot about what it means to be a sister. And I remember the moment that I decided to write this book. It was a beautiful day and I was watching my little girls playing in the garden and they were squealing with happiness and it was all going really, really well. And then suddenly it turned to those different kinds of squeals, those, you know, someone's been injured kind of squeals. And so I went to investigate and when I did, I found that my older daughter, Eloise, was crying and she had these ring of teeth marks in her upper arm. (laughs) And she was about six at the time and my younger daughter, Clementine, was two and she was looking kind of guilty. And so, of course, you know, naturally I went to reprimand Clementine for biting her sister and at that point Eloise, the injured party, jumped in and said, don't you yell at my baby sister. And I thought this is so crazy because as someone who has two older brothers, I can tell you that there was no greater joy in my childhood than when my brothers got into trouble. In fact, still now at the age of 40, there is no greater joy in my life than my mum tells them off. And yet here is my daughter. She's just been bitten and she doesn't want her baby sister to get into trouble. And she actually said to me, don't worry, mum, I'll get her back later when she's not expecting it. And then off they went and they were playing again. And I just thought there is something about this dynamic that is different from brothers and sisters and is different from perhaps even friends and and other kinds of relationships. It's special and it's unique to sisters. And that was, you know, there were various other things that played into this book, but that was the moment that I walked away from and I went to my office and I started writing notes for The Good Sister. So you saw the good and the bad in your kids and developed it into the story of twins, Rose and Fern. Now, we hear their stories in different ways. With Fern, it's just really what's happening now. Rose is reflecting on the past. Now, why is Rose writing a journal? Well, at the start of the book, we find out that Rose is going through some difficult times in her relationship. Her husband has left and she is still really wanting to have a baby. And so she's going to some counselling to try and get her through that. And as part of that counselling, she is writing a diary. And that's, of course, like like all counselling, they go back to your childhood and you have to reflect on things that have happened when you're very young and and that's what Rose does and so throughout the book you get these flashbacks to the life of Rose and Fern when they were very little and that helps inform the characters. Well there's been an incident in their childhood which is still resonating with them today. There's protection and trust that's part of the connection or as Fern puts it and if you don't mind I'm going to read from Sally's book here. 
that people without sisters think it's all sunshine and lollipops or all blood and guts, but actually it's always both, sunshine and guts, lollipops and blood, good and bad. The bad is essential to the relationship as the good. Maybe the bad is even more important because that's what ties them together. Why does Rose think she needs to protect Fern? Okay, so there are a couple of things. I think part of it is to do with the fact that Rose is just more of a protective sister and often you see in these roles it's one of them will take care of the other one. But I think that a bigger part of it is that Fern is neuroatypical and this is never fully fleshed out in the book, whether it is, um, you know, autism or some other kind of neurodiversity because Fern has not been diagnosed. And we find out that her mother didn't want to get her diagnosed because she felt strongly that Fern was just Fern and a label wasn't going to help her. Um, But it's obvious from the very first page the very first line that fern sees the world a little bit differently you say that she suffers from sensory overload she absolutely has and that is talked about sensory processing disorders and that to do with specifically sound and light Um, and so for those reasons she avoids crowds she wears sunglasses or goggles if she goes out somewhere that's too bright she tries not to go to shopping centers or places that have got extreme overhead lights Um, and definitely not places that have got a lot of noise like a a movie theatre or a... uh, Bowling alley. A bowling alley, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) And so generally she avoids those things, but we see in the book that as things start to kick off, she's sort of thrust into those places that she would normally avoid. She can't read people's body language, but she's learned to do things in certain circumstances. Now, she's particularly good at staring competitions why did she perfect that art (laughs) I know and I think that that is one of the things that people misunderstand about autism and about neurodiversity is that people think well all neurodiverse people are like this or they can't do that or they don't feel empathy or they can't stare at someone because they have to avoid eye contact and in fact one of the things I wanted to get across because I have got neurodiversity in my family is that in fact if you have met one person with autism you've met one person with autism some people who are autistic are fantastic at staring competitions um, because a it's staring competitions and not necessarily eye contact it's something different and b because we're all different and and in the book there is Fern and Wally who are both probably neurodiverse Mm. and yet they're very different and their challenges are quite different so I really wanted to get away from this one-size-fits-all image that we have about autism or the wider kind of umbrella of of neurodiverse people and you know them just being these rigid kind of nerdy little characters because that's just not always the way it is. Where does Fern work? Fern is a librarian which was a very important part of this book I am a a library lover I have grown up going to the library I as an adult and as a writer before COVID I worked in a library writing my books so I packed up my computer every day I took them to the library and I wrote this whole book while sitting in the Brighton library where this book is set Um, I got my intel on librarians from the the Bayside library staff 
I got a tour of the uh, staff room and the showers and the bathrooms and all of the things there. And so it really just became sort of part and parcel of this book. I think this is leading perfectly in Sally Hepworth reading from page eight from her fantastic book, The Good Sister. And this is in Fern's words, talking about the place of her employment. The Bayside Library boasts two showers thanks to its former life as a hospital. So it's not uncommon for the homeless to come in to shower. The first time I saw a homeless person come in, I was affronted. But that was before I worked with Janet, my old supervisor. Janet told me that the library belongs to everyone. The library, Janet used to say, is one of only a few places in the world that one does not need to believe anything or buy anything to come inside. And it's the librarian's job to look after all those who do. I take this responsibility very seriously, except if they require assistance with the photocopiers. And then I give them a very wide berth. <laughs> yes. Oh, coping with that technical stuff. Uh, 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 she's very good at <laughs> books and people. So it's Wally that comes in looking for the shower. Yes, Wally comes in and she thinks he's a homeless man and she goes to talk to him and she assumes that he's homeless and in some ways he is, but I won't give away all of those. Absolutely uh, not. <laughs> no, no, no. She's worked, worked it in her own mind that the one way that she can help her sister is to become pregnant. We know as you've written, that Rose is in complete contrast. Rose is settled. She has a house, a husband, Owen, a dog, and this desire to have a child. You, you've called her an ovulation kit wielding, sperm testing, temperature taking lunatic. And so early in the book, Fern discovers that Rose is not able to, to have a baby and she takes that into her mind and she thinks about that and of course as we talked about earlier Rose has always been very protective of Fern and has looked after her and helps her live her life while avoiding those noises and crowds and things like that and so when Fern discovers that she can't have a baby she thinks about it quite pragmatically and thinks well I could have a baby for her and that's how I could pay her back for everything that she's done for me but Fern doesn't mention this to Rose no. and she just she just she, takes it upon herself. She doesn't actually mention it to Wally either and this is where I'm no. going to ask Sally to read from page 113 <laughs> because Fern takes everything literal. Yes she does and this scene I think this is when she has been on a date with Wally and they have come home and things are going pretty well especially when we consider that she wants to become pregnant. So they're back at Fern's apartment and that's where we start. Is it safe he'd asked when we were both naked and he was hovering over me? An odd question I thought but then I supposed it was important that one felt safe when they're in a new environment. I'd taken a few moments to ponder this finally determining that while it wasn't Impossible that a madman could burst into my flat at any given moment wielding a handgun. Neither was my flat war-torn Syria. So after an appropriate amount of consideration, I'd replied, yes, it's safe. And that seemed to be the right answer because after that, everything commenced rather quickly. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, yes. 
Fern had to tell Rose about Wally and we get Rose's indication from her journal. 90% of all people with intellectual disabilities will be sexually assaulted in their life. Call me protective, but I'm going to make damn sure that my sister is going to be among the 10% not sexually assaulted. You can sort of see that the two sisters are going into this whole love interest, sex interest in a completely different way. We learn from Rose about the difficulty of growing up with a mother they, uh, they had. As Rose said, everything, if you dig down far enough, links back to mum. Love was conditional. You had to earn it. The mother, we just found out halfway through the book that the mother was around and things were happening with her. She was going to maybe be able to speak. Mm. which which turns this book into just sort of a, a simple story about sisters into a rather conniving story about sisters. Mm. Well, I think we've got to leave it there. <laughs> Tell yeah, too there's much not too more. much I can add. No. <laughs> but I do think, I guess, that it, it's testimony to the fact that who we are as adults is so tightly linked back to our past and that really forms who we become, and and that was definitely the case with Fern and Rose. Graham Simpson wrote The Rosie Project. He also wrote about you, Sally Hepworth, being an exceptional observer of people and their relationships. Now, in his book, he gave um, Dan Altman, who was on the spectrum, judo expertise, and you've given Fern karate expertise. (laughs) So... People on the spectrum need to have a superpower. <laughs> well, it's interesting because, um, as I said, I have uh, autism in my family, and it is we have been a big karate family for for various reasons. But one is that the the repetitiveness of karate, especially in uh, the early years before the sparring starts, is actually a really good type of sport for autistic people to do there's a lot of rules to follow it's quite clear-cut it depends on the sensory issues that people have sometimes touching can be difficult but there's a lot of carters and things that they can learn but there's also of course someone who is different there's the requirement the need the desire as a parent to to make sure that they can physically defend themselves and so while it's not necessarily something that always goes hand in hand with people on the spectrum or neurodiverse people it is something just anecdotally that I have found to be common that that autistic kids are doing some sort of martial art and doing really well at it okay well from sport back to books and I love the book recommendations that um Fern gave in the library I think there might have been some some of those authors linked back to your writing game if I noticed that yes whenever I'm looking for and obviously there was lots of opportunities for books in this yeah so when there was a book recommendation to make then it was one of my friend's books that got got a Guernsey in there and um, a couple of them didn't even know until recently someone told them and I said wow did you not read my book thanks a lot (laughs) 
<laughs> also recommended Jasper Jones. And next week yeah. I'll, I'm going to be talking to Craig Sylvie about his new book, oh. Honeybee, which sort of fits in very nicely. But I think yeah. we have to leave with Sally Hepworth having the last words. And this is again from her book on page 227. I don't think I need to give any preempt or no. to this one. It says, sisterly relationships are so strange in this way. The way I can be mad at Rose but still want to please her, be terrified of her and also want to run to her, hate her and love her both at the same time. Maybe when it comes to sisters, boundaries are always a little bit blurry. Blurred boundaries, I think, are what sisters do best. Except for Wally. Wally finishes up with, I think there is something very wrong with your sister. Oh, Sally Hepworth has mixed humour with dark reality in The Good Sister. Thank you very much, Sally Hepworth. Most welcome. Thank you. And now it's David's turn. Every Second Tuesday is an anthology of stories compiled by Elwood writers. Jennifer Bryce and Barry Lee Thompson are here to talk about the group and some of those stories. So, Jennifer, welcome to 3CR. And Barry, welcome back. Thanks, Thank you, David. David. Firstly, to you, Barry, tell us a little about Elwood Writers. Well, Elwood Writers is a writing group. Um, there are four of us in the group. There's myself and Jennifer, Helen MacDonald and Margaret McCaffrey. And we've been around since 2007. Um, actually, Jennifer and I first met at an event at the My Brother Jack Literary Festival, uh, which is run by Glen Ira City Council in 2007. And we started the group from there. The other two joined shortly afterwards. We write around across very different genres. It's, very, it's a convenient kind of shorthand to think of us as um, the poet, the memoirist, the novelist and the short story writer. But we do cross over into different genres from time to time. Jennifer, what's the value of such a writer's group generally and for you personally? Oh, yes. Well, we're in touch with each other frequently. In fact, I realised that it's rather like a work group in some ways. And we're in touch with each other by email almost every day, talking about our work or particularly recently about putting together this anthology. But um, I think the great value is that we're all really seriously wanting to be good writers. So it's quite a serious group in some ways. Um, we're not competitive at all. As Barry said, we do tend to write in different genre. And so we're really helping each other. And quite early on, we decided that we didn't need to pat each other on the back. Um, we produced a piece of work and we'd say, look, What's wrong with this? How can it be improved? And more recently, we've come to realise how important it is to ask, what's the actual intention of this piece that you're writing? So we help each other in this kind of way. We get together um, quite formally every fortnight, but just about every day we're emailing each other or phoning each other um, about particular writerly issues. Many of the stories seem to have a personal foundation. Now, the first piece in the collection is one you wrote, Jennifer, Teleferico. A tourist gets herself in trouble. Was this something you actually experienced? Not completely, but as with, I think, most of my stories anyway, 
there's always some incident that has sparked off the idea to write the story. So I did actually go to Bogota for my work and I was there by myself for a weekend and I did climb that mountain, but thank goodness <laughs> I wasn't stopped by young boys with knives or robbed or anything like that. There was simply the danger that was mentioned and I did see the tourist police dotted along the walking track and I didn't find the Teleferico to start off with, uh, the cable car that's meant to take you to the top of the mountain. So I did walk all the way up, which was quite challenging, I might say. So there was the truth of the incident that I did climb that mountain and I was there by myself and nobody else in the world knew at that particular point that I was climbing this mountain that was supposed to be a bit dangerous for tourists. Were you conscious of crafting the piece? Because it begins with bells and we never truly know where we are, but we get clues along the way. I wasn't as aware of crafting it and, and giving the reader clues as to where we might be. I think I didn't mention the actual city that it was Bogota that I had in mind. Um, the bell is quite true that I was woken in the morning by the sound of this bell. I have no idea who was ringing it. I um, made up the man with one tooth or whatever, but I loved the idea of waking up with a bell and I was very aware that the people there were very faithful. It was a very Catholic city and it was dominated by um, this statue of Christ at the top of a very high mountain. It's also got a good Samaritan feel to it along the way. But we'll move on. Barry, there's a section in the collection commemorating Armistice Day. And there's yeah. a story of yours, Chloe, that resonates. A young boy off to war and his only understanding of women comes from that portrait in Young and Jackson's. Yeah, I mean, it's very loosely based on the portrait of Chloe, which is a quite famous painting, which hangs in Young and Jackson's and has for some time now, and is, is a little bit of a tourist attraction. And I wanted to write the story. I thought that was a very good um, kind of hook for that story. Um, as I was writing the story, though, I became aware that I either had to go down the route of being very factual about the painting or to just let my imagination kind of run riot and just use it as the prompt. And I took the second option. So it may not be, there may be aspects of the story which aren't actually factually, historically accurate in terms of the painting because I wanted to kind of just go with the imaginative, down the imaginative route. But as you say, this is, I thought it was a very interesting idea that this very young man is about to go off to a theatre of war and his only experience of women is going to be that painting. So he's left in a position where his only resource, as it were, his only sexual resource is his own body and his imagination. And we also get a glimpse into the future as well, because um, Chloe has some kind of um, ability to see what a person's fate might be. And so we do get a glimpse into the fact that this, this boy or this young man is never going to have any physical contact with another person. Chloe is an iconic image, and it actually does appear mm. in other works of Australian literature. 
I'm thinking yeah. of summer of the 17th doll, workers congregating at Young and Jackson's opposite yeah. Flinders uh, station. So it has a very pivotal place in a lot of the events that have taken place in Australia. There are also poetic interludes in this collection, uh, often by Helen MacDonald. Here's one of them called Twelve. I stand at the edge of the class, sheltering in the sweep of her holy habit, a pause sucking time from this first day. Thirty faces swivel as one, a seismic wave breaking the stillness, this cluster of blue conformity sweating lightly in the stuffy air. Curious eyes strafe the new, the one from across the seas. I am alien in this other world, though they look the same as me. I nestle into her habit's folds, then a nudge, a tip towards the unknown, pushes me over the line and into the end of the beginning. I'm just wondering, Jennifer, is there much collaboration or advice offered between the members when it comes to these different forms and genres that appear in the book? Oh, certainly. Well, we, we would have all been very familiar with that poem because Helen would have presented it to our group when, when we were meeting and we would have all read it and commented on it and made suggestions. And if there were, part, if there were lines or words that were a bit obscure to us, then we would say. And I seem to keep on having... Um, suggestions about the rhythm of the poetry. Uh, that, that's something that appeals to me very much. So we, we don't collaborate in terms of actually writing the poem together, but we provide a lot of commentary. But a typical thing would be Helen would present it to the group as her work for the fortnight or whatever, and we would comment on it, make suggestions, and she might very well take it away, work on it a bit more and bring it back next time. Lastly, I mean, another contributor is Margaret McCaffrey. I love the piece she has on ironing. It's talked about as a almost like a meditative marathon. Barry, do you deliberately encourage people to write about the ordinary things like that, like ironing, and to see what emanates from that sort of focus? It's very interesting that you pick up on that one because I think a lot of the stories do focus on very ordinary events in lives. And that wasn't deliberate. That wasn't something that we said, let's let's collate a lot of stories that um, address this theme or that come from that particular place. But that was a theme that emerged. And as with many of the themes in the book, as we put the, the collection together, as we put the anthology together, we did notice these themes run through that sort of magically emerged. I mean, I don't know how quite how that happened. I think a lot of it is to do with the fact that we do meet every second Tuesday. So we do spend a lot of time um, in each other's company in, in a writerly way. And so perhaps there's a kind of um, collegiate aspect to things where we, you know, these are things that we will have discussed and we will have looked at. You know, that kind of, that sort of solitary meditative piece, I think, does run through how interesting things can be found in the everyday. Thank you both for your contribution today. Pleasure. The book is Every Second Tuesday. It's an anthology compiled by the Elwood Writers. And you've self-published this work, Barry. Yes, we thought that would probably be the, the easiest way to go. We, I mean, it was through Right Word Enterprises, which is David Grigg, um, is the publisher. But we thought we wanted to have complete control, of, creative control over the book. 
and editorial control. So we thought that was probably the, the best way for us to go. Well, Jennifer, Barry, thank you very much for talking with me today. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for having us, David. Thank you, David. Well, Jen, that takes us out for another week. And look, more books to read for next week, more authors to chat with. See you then. Well, let's Bye. talk then. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.